Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer, with support from the North Face. Never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection. An element, restoring health through hydration. It's very strange base jumping because it compresses all these moments of anxiety and fear and all that into one moment. And that is the moment that you decide you're going to start running off the top. This is Randy Levitt, who I tried to compare to James Bond in a previous episode, but couldn't remember the name James Bond, even though I can always remember the name Randy Levitt. No one's rushing you. They're not saying it's time. It's, you know, the winds aren't changing. It's the airplane's not moving. You're just standing there and you're like, well, I'm standing here and I'm, I'm mellow. Once you start running, you're not stopping because that, that Donwall diving board is really downsloping. You know that thing. You, you don't start running off something that's sloping 20 degrees and then change your mind halfway down. You're going to fall stomach to earth like a badminton birdie would and then get into a tracking position. And you want to arch your back and keep your head up so that you don't do an inadvertent front loop. And then after a while, after you gain airspeed, you feel like you're flying. I mean, you are tracking away from the wall at a pretty good rate. I'm just sitting here feeling anxiety. I'm just like, oh God, everything about that like fills me with the red. You're, you're feeling anxiety, Alex? <laughs> I mean, well, honestly, like, I mean, I, I learned how to skydive thinking that I was going to get into base jumping and, and I never really liked it. I, I didn't like the sensation. I found it all. But the whole thing just makes me feel a little little anxious i'm like oh i just i just don't like free falling <laughs> through through the sky and the idea of just running at the edge of el cap as fast as you can and just jumping off i'm like oh my gosh building antenna span earth aka base in 1980 when a 20 year old randy became the first person to climb and then jump off el cap the high stakes shoot off of skydiving done close to the ground and with no reserve parachutes was just getting started where did you get the idea to climb El Cap and then base jump off of it? We threw our, our haul bags off the top using our hammocks as parachutes. And right as I threw the haul bags off and I watched the parachute go down with the haul bags, that scene was etched in my mind. And as soon as I got a hold of that idea, I thought, you know, that's what I need to do. I need to climb El Cap and jump off. You know, that would be the perfect thing to do. I, I wasn't trying to do it in a daredevil way. I just thought, well, that's the way to do it. Talk me through the whole experience. I mean, what did it feel like to climb El Cap knowing that you were going to fly off? I wasn't really preoccupied with it as I was climbing up. It was seemed like a normal climb. We climbed Excalibur. It's a, you know, 510 A4 type route. And John Yablonski, the famous Yalbo, he hiked my parachute up the back. Yalbo gave me the chute. I jumped off and those guys walked back. So the Rangers were actually waiting for me at the bottom at three in the morning when I landed. And I got arrested on that last jump. Sentenced to six months in jail originally. Eventually, the after serving a week in Yosemite jail, I was called back out by Judge Pitts and he modified it to seven days with two years of formal probation. And I haven't jumped in the valley since. I haven't made an illegal jump since then. You got two years probation for jumping off El Cap? I did. That is so crazy. That's pretty hardcore. Yeah, they tried to make they were trying to make an example out of people, which they they did. They scared me. I was an 18-year-old kid 
or 19 years old. Dude, you were 19 when you base jumped off El Cap? No, wait, I was 20. And honestly, being a 20-year-old is not the best time for risk assessment. No. no (laughs) Randy became base jumper 39, the 39th person in the world to have successfully jumped from all four types of terrestrial launch pads. Not too long afterwards, he would walk away after a close call on a jump. Today, we take a look at the moment in climbing when the leaders of our sport stepped to the edge and jumped into the golden age of human flight. We talked to Chris McNamara and Steph Davis. Climbing brought a whole new perspective to base and base did the same for climbing. And with it, a whole new element of risk had arrived in our sport. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitzka Hall. You're listening to Climbing Gold. Chapter six, when climbing takes flight. My name is Chris McNamara. I'm 41 and have been climbing for 27 years. As a 15 year old in the 1990s, Chris dove into big wall climbing. In his heyday, he would spend over three years of total time on the side of El Cap, exploring almost every nook and cranny of the giant monolith. When did you learn about base jumping? When did you first hear about it? What was your experience? Like, let's just dive into it. Yeah, well, I actually first learned about base jumping. I was in Norway in 97 at the Troll Wall and uh, came across like very early base jumpers and just thought it was the coolest thing. There's no way I'll ever get into that, but that's amazing. A few years passed. Then I just got that like crazy opportunity where someone said, hey, do you want to just go base jumping with zero skydives? Shane McConkie had kind of developed this, uh, it was called death camping. If you're a skier, you probably know the name Shane McConkie. He pushed the sport of big mountain skiing both athletically and from a gear standpoint. Then he began combining skiing with base jumping where he'd ski on a line with a massive cliff below him and then gather speed before jumping off and pulling a chute. Oftentimes like throwing like two flips, it was pretty crazy. He was one of the earliest Red Bull athletes and his jumps were where the mainstream sporting world really began to pick up on the emerging sport of base jumping. He kind of became famous for taking people with no skydives and being like, you just hold a parachute and uh, look at the horizon and arch your back and uh, you'll, you'll be great. And I kind of was just there at that moment. I think I was like 20, 24. Are you saying that at that moment in time it seemed reasonable for people to go base jumping with no experience just to jump off something with a parachute and and hope that it worked out yeah i think that as a climber when i first started base jumping i almost thought it was harder for me to to actually jump off a cliff than like somebody who's not a climber because it just goes against like you know all of your self-preservation Mm-hmm. that you have developed over all these years of like, I must never fall. <laughs> and, and to then just go jumping off the edge is like, it's a pretty hard barrier to cross through. Here is Steph Davis. Steph is one of the most talented traditional climbers ever. She's free climbed the South Atlanta Cap, completed a free rider in a day ascent. 
Steph was also the first female to free solo 511 and did numerous expeditions to the great ranges of the world. She brought together athleticism and adventure in a way that few climbers can. Falling is, you know, it's something that I have a lot of emotional things around. And so to kind of be really just kind of looking that in the face in an environment where you can was definitely interesting to me and felt like a, like a really big growth opportunity. I really just went into skydiving kind of like, let's kind of explore this. Let's get more into this falling thing that I'm always trying not to do. Didn't really intend to start base jumping, but that just naturally happened. How many jumps had you done at that point? Before I started base jumping? Yeah. Um, a little bit less than 200, which 200 is the recommended most <laughs> minimal amount that everyone thinks you should do. And I really agree with that. I think I started a little too fast. As she progressed into base jumping, it only made sense to combine it with climbing. The first one I did was Castleton because, you know, of course, that's the one that really stands out. Castleton is a classic freestanding tower outside of Moab where Steph lives. And so I, I think that one was super special. It kind of like started it off in a way. For Moab, it's relatively tall. You jump over an arete, so you have kind of open wall on a couple sides of you, which is very nice for safety. Mm -hmm. And and pretty long canopy rides, so you definitely have time to kind of, you know, deal with things and kind of get yourself situated. So I would say generally speaking, Castleton is probably a fairly friendly jump. Is it scary to jump off the cliff? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're not scared jumping off a cliff, you should not be jumping off a cliff. That's just kind of how I feel about okay. it. And this is like, I've been jumping for, I think, 13 years now. And I probably do, I would say between three and 400 jumps a year. So like, you know, I, I think you should be scared. <laughs> is, it, is it almost like going for like an after work run for you? Oh, yeah. Just jumping in Moab is definitely like that. It's, it's a really, you know... It's just something you go do in the morning. I used to do it to take my dog for a walk because she used to run down after I jumped. But um, she hasn't been enjoying that recently. So I'm not bringing her when I jump anymore. And that definitely has changed it. Like it used to be I would have to jump like every day. At that time in climbing, or at least in American climbing, the sport seemed to be separating into two distinct paths. On one side, the athletic standards were rising as climbing became safer. Difficulty trumps danger. This was the path of Chris Sharma, Tommy Caldwell, and Beth Rodden. And on the other side were the Stone Monkeys. The Stone Monkeys really are a cultural extension of the Stone Masters, turned up to 11. You know, it's all just turned up a notch, more extreme and on a different scale. That might mean flying off, that might mean climbing something faster, that might mean doing without a rope. We're sort of like, Oh, you're playing the same song, but now you're playing it really loud. I think a lot of the climbing that the Stone Monkeys were doing did have a, an air of theatricality to it. You know, it was like a performance in a way. It's hard to say why that was the case, though. I think part of what shaped the Stone Monkeys was just having a few charismatic leaders who were into certain things. I mean, you have somebody like Dean, and, and Dean Potter was just personally interested in free soloing and slacklining and bass jumping and like, you know, highlining all the, all these things that he considered his art. You know, it's like, oh, let's rig a highline between these two giant formations and then walk halfway across and bass jump off. 
you're like, yeah, I'm sure that's fun and I'm sure it's interesting and kind of challenging, but mostly it's like a complete spectacle. You know, it's like the video is insane. The footage is crazy. You know, it's like, I don't know. What an unusual detour the climbing took. Stone monkeys can be loosely characterized as the generation of climbers active between the mid-90s to the mid-aughts, especially in Yosemite Valley. While Dean Potter may have often been seen as the intellectual leader of the era, it was a technological innovation outside of climbing that truly changed the generation's course. After the break, we head to Baffin Island. I've been a North Face athlete for almost 18 years, which has been incredible, and I've always appreciated their commitment to exploration. Summit Series is the name of the pinnacle North Face products that I use on every expedition, and I love that their tagline is athlete-tested and expedition-proven. I've personally tested these products all over the world, and they've always proven themselves. Future Fleece is the next-generation base layer that I wear almost every day of climbing outside, whether on the wall or at the crag. You can shop the full Summit Series collection at thenorthface.com. I first found Koros when I was looking for a GPS watch that could track my biggest outdoor adventures. I needed something with a massive battery life that was also robust enough to handle the climbing. As it turns out, Koros is the only GPS watch brand that has done some serious development for climbers, from multi-bitch GPS tracking to indoor programmed workouts. The watches have a mind-blowing battery life. The Vertex watch series lasts for more than 100 hours in GPS activities, so I only need to charge it once every several weeks. I only need to charge my watch so sporadically that I can never find the charger because I haven't used it in six weeks. (laughs) If you're interested in bringing new technology into your climbing, training, and tracking, you should consider their new Vertex 2S. Go to Koros.com and use the code CLIMBINGGOLD to secure a free watch carabiner with the purchase of your new Vertex 2S. In 1999, the first commercially available wingsuit hit the market for skydivers. And it wasn't really intended for base jumping, but it would take hold in the sport. The suits opened more terrain because base jumpers could glide. The closer a jump carried you to vertical walls or the ground, the greater the sensation of flight. Chris saw this little film called Super Terminal, a grainy video of people flying in Norway, and it instantly changed his perspective on the sport. It was the kind of thing you'd find on DVD at a skydiving school, playing on loop at the TV. Then it all kind of clicked where I was like, oh, this isn't the sport of, you know, jumping off small things, almost hitting the ground, but a parachute opens. This is like the sport of flying. I'd say there there are two big appeals. The simple one is you're flying. And, you know, many people have had dreams of flying and it is just about as cool as you think it would be. And then the other big component was the first ascent component. Instead of first ascents, it's finding all these new exits that no one has ever jumped off of and, you know, figuring out, is it possible? Like, will the suit separate you from the earth fast enough? And the two came together and it was a pretty magical uh, time there. I was kind of already open to that idea of something totally crazy and insane can become normal through the big wall progression. Obviously, it's risky. Um, but what about wingsuiting is so compelling stuff? When you do get into that zone of jumping, it's obviously longer on a wingsuit jump than on a slider off short jump. But again, I think the time is different. Like if you're on a wingsuit flight, 
it could be like a one and a half minute flight or a two minute flight and then a minute or two under parachute that doesn't feel like a normal minute or three you know you kind of are really deeply aware of every bit of every second of that time and it's it's compressed it's super compressed but it is a really amazing feeling of focus when you're doing it and i i definitely like that part of it can you talk about some of the exits that you've opened? Yeah, so I mean, I started in Zion. And so um, you'd ask the skydivers, like, what has been jumped off in Zion? They're like, oh yeah, I mean, only the stuff that you can basically hike to off an established trail because, you know, it's pretty much impossible to get to the rest of that other stuff. And I was like, actually, that's five seven. Um, not impossible. <laughs> When I was starting out, like a two to one glide ratio or two feet forward for one foot down was kind of really great. And now it's progressed way past that. Um, I think somewhere between three and four to one glide ratio, which means, you know, if you jump off a cliff that's 3000 feet tall, you can go, uh, you can get a flight that's well over a mile. And then of course in Yosemite, I'd say like one of the coolest ones was Ribbon Falls. And so that one with a wingsuit became jumping straight over a waterfall um, into this amphitheater, but then flying out and then getting another, you know, 1500 feet of terrain. That is the lead up to Ribbon Falls. Dude, just listening to this makes me want a bass drop. Like that <laughs> is so epic to fly off of Ribbon Falls and fly out of the amphitheater and then just land down in the down in the flats, you know, down by the river. You're just like, that's so crazy. You know, one of my friends who has now retired from base jumping once described a flight off Middle Cathedral where you flew off Middle Cathedral, went backward through the gun site, which is in between Middle and Lower Cathedral, and then hooked a right and went off Bridal Veil Falls. And I was like, man, the idea of jumping off the top of Middle Cathedral and then flying backwards through a notch and then off Bridal Veil Falls and like landing, you know, sort of in the other part of Yosemite Valley. I was like, that is so crazy. Like imagine navigating the landscape in that way, you know, to just be using your body as a wing to fly through Yosemite. It's like, I mean, it must be this incredible feeling. The stone monkeys had missed the golden age of climbing, but wingsuiting gave them an opportunity to reimagine their landscape the same way that the Yosemite climbers of yesteryear had approached El Cap. There was possibility everywhere. On the show, we've talked about how sometimes personalities and generational talents power movements in climbing. And then sometimes it's broader trends in gear or society that power evolution. In 2006, that same year the Norwegian base jumpers released the super terminal movie that changed Chris Mack's life, a couple of big things were happening across society that at first glance might seem like they have nothing to do with stone monkeys, base jumping, or any of this. One, cable internet takes over. People can get speeds of five megabytes per second, and with it, HD video. Two, Google purchases YouTube for $1.65 billion in stock and carries the platform out of the Wild West in October of 2006. One month earlier, Facebook became available to anyone with a valid email address 13 and older. Three, 
A small startup camera company out of San Diego releases its first digital camera capable of recording 10-second bursts of footage, and it sells $800,000 of wearable cameras in the first year. In a few years, GoPro is a globally recognizable brand being traded on Wall Street. The infrastructure is in place, the platform waiting, tools ready to use. The internet was primed, and now it needed something for people to watch. A lot of the climbing, and well, basically the climbing and all the other things that Stone Monkeys were doing were very much stunts. You know, I mean, they were like performance art in a way. And without being able to share that with an audience, there isn't exactly a reason for doing them. And so I think that a lot of those things, you know, happened because there was suddenly a new way to document them and share them. Yeah, and I, I do think there's a level of it that it did resonate too, because it did really seem this like expression of human possibility, of what is the edge of possible and how far can people go? I don't know. And I don't know if that's true. I think it's more... You don't think so? I don't know. I mean, dude, seeing people fly, I mean, the wingsuiting stuff, seeing the stuff in the Alps. No, that's uh, that's true. Humans can do that. Yeah, and, and Dean had the crazy dream of landing a wingsuit. I mean, his, you know, I mean, basically his dream was to jump off a cliff, fly down, and then land. And had he ever pulled that off, it'd be pretty incredible for a human to fly down off a cliff and then just land at the bottom, you know, without a parachute. It'd be, it'd be totally insane. But, uh, you know, it never quite came together. I think I'd be psyched to try to follow you. Yeah. It's 2007. Chris Mack, he's standing on top of a giant pinnacle of rock. So, yeah. You say when. I stepped off that thing, so. If you look down, yeah. you can see... Uh, the frozen seas of Baffin Island completely stretching out forever. It's pretty incredible. I'm going to call this my bird dance. I do it every time. Nice. Chris is with professional base jumper Melissa Burns. Here we go. Three, two, one. You can hear the elation, the allure, the high in Chris's voice. And the rest of the team watched from below, and they were also psyched. Chris and Melissa turned back right away to cut another lap, and a third team member joined. Three hours later, they stood on top, calculating a plan. Melissa and Chris would jump, and their friend would follow and film. You didn't have that long to get the wingsuit flying, and then you had to kind of fly out of this canyon. and. Uh, it was just this amazing jump. Uh, he, for whatever reason, wasn't able to get the wingsuit flying, impacted without a parachute. And instantly that changed the whole sport for me from, oh, I, it seems dangerous, but I don't know if it's really that dangerous to, oh, wow, people can die right in front of you. And at that moment, it was kind of the beginning of the end. Um, because for a while, because the wingsuit was so new, you could go to the base fatality list and be like, oh, look, like there's almost no wingsuit deaths. Like maybe the wingsuit's making everything safe. And that's what we were telling ourselves then. There were still so many things that had never been base jumped off of. It was still kind of this golden age in the sport that I, 
still had a few things in my back pocket where I was like, it would still, even though I know this is now, I now have no illusions about the danger of this sport. I've, you know, I've been there when someone died. I've now started to have more and more friends die. I still had these two things. One was the summit of Mount Whitney all the way to uh, Lone Pine. And the other one was no one had base jumped into the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon was, you know, it's, it's one of the most iconic national parks in the country. One of the most iconic kind of geographical features in the world. And so it was amazing that you have, you know, hundreds of miles of cliffs, but no one had been able to figure out how do you jump off it and then return safely to where you started. But the reason was there just weren't that many people base jumping at the time. I started by driving to all the easy spots, really hoping like, oh, hopefully I can drive to the edge here and there'll be some nice hiking trail to get me back. But even though the Grand Canyon's super long and has a cliff at the edge for much of it, usually that cliff is only 500 or 600 feet tall, which at the time was not a big enough cliff to get the wingsuit flying. And so after driving to all these obvious spots, I knew that it was going to be some super remote location and that the only way to um, figure that out was to float the entire Grand Canyon and look back up and, and kind of assess from the river what would be the right jump. I got to float the whole thing and, and scope it out and found that perfect cliff that might be the largest, most overhanging sandstone cliff in the country. Even though it was a super safe jump and there was a giant landing area at the bottom, it was really unclear how to get back out because it's such a remote spot. You have to uh, you know, basically drive 24 miles of dirt roads just to get there. And then once you're there, there's no trail at the bottom that takes you back up. And so we had to kind of do a, a first ascent of a trail from the top down to make sure that once we landed, we could actually get back up. And so that was the, you know, a big day of walking until you like cliff out and then reversing course and then walking down another spot and then cliffing out and reversing course. But we finally kind of pieced together this super random fourth class route that uh, took you more or less back to your exit point. But I was so tired from that day. It was just, you know, this huge day of hiking. After the hike out, Chris planned to take a rest day. But the weather was about to shift. So the next morning, he decided to go for it. I, in my mind, was like, I can suck it up for 30 seconds and, and get a good flight in. But what I didn't realize is that being super tired is sort of like being drunk. The first thing that goes is your balance. And losing your balance in wingsuiting is like the worst thing ever, as I learned on this jump, because you can think you're doing it all right and yet you're in the right position. But just being a little off is all it takes to just start, you know, flying more like a, a brick than a flying squirrel. The Grand Canyon is basically like this three level wedding cake where, um, you know, you just have to keep making it over another section. And so like, you jump off the first steep cliff and then there's a long talus field and then there'll be like another cliff. I jump and, and I'm suddenly like just falling like way faster than I've ever fallen at the surface and flying way less than I've ever actually flown. Because what happened is I, is I jumped off and I planned to instantly turn sideways and start flying next to everything. Within about six or seven seconds, I'd done that. I turned into the cliff 
And then I just really started watching the ground come up way closer than it ever had. And then I just abandoned that whole plan and said, okay, now it's just about outrunning everything. Like I was flying so poorly that I wasn't even matching the pitch of the talus field. And so I needed to kind of get to that next bench, that next cliff came up to almost hitting the ground and then just barely cleared it and then you know, flew over like another 300 foot cliff. I just want to make it to the river and live. I came up on this one cliff and just barely went by it, probably cleared it by like 10 feet or less. Pulled out of that, I no longer had the glide ratio to make it to the landing zone. So I had this kind of split decision of, do I land in like a giant talus field, maybe sprain an ankle and not be able to hike back out? Or do I just land in the water? And I thought like landing in the water would be no big deal. Once your parachute fills with water, it's an anchor and it basically wants to suck you to the bottom of the river. And so after landing in the river, I then had kind of the five minute doggy paddle for my life and, um, and kind of pulled myself onto shore and instantly knew if I was on the fence before, but now I just, know that this sport's over because as cool as these adventures are they're just not worth dying for there's just nothing even as cool as doing the first swingsuit into the grand canyon that's worth this type of risk i knew it was time to move on to something else do you still want to base jump alex no no i'm, I'm like sort of horrified at all <laughs> i'm just like oh man After the break, things go wrong. Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix formulated with a science-backed ratio of sodium to potassium to magnesium. Each packet delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes free of sugar, artificial colors, or other dodgy ingredients. It tastes great, and I've used it extensively on expeditions. Element is formulated for anyone looking to restore health through hydration, and is perfectly suited for athletes, folks who are fasting, or those following keto, low-carb, whole food, or paleo diets. Try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, they'll refund your order, no questions asked. So whether you're a new or returning Element customer, you can get a free Element sample pack with any drink mix order when you go to drinkelement.com slash climbinggold. That's drinklmnt.com slash climbinggold. Dr. Squatch crafts natural, high-performance personal care products with no harmful ingredients. I don't shower often, but when I do, I use Dr. Squatch. I especially like the Wood Barrel Bourbon Bar Soap. From soap to shampoo to conditioner, they help me look, feel, and smell my best for whatever adventure I choose. They're offering new customers 20% off any purchase with the code climbinggold. Or you can go to drsquatch.com slash honald. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. So Chris, the, like, all this is unfolding over the course of three or four years, right? Yeah. Yeah, in retrospect, it wasn't that much time. It was just I put uh, basically my whole life into it because I saw that this was a very rare moment in a sport. You know, I think most sports only get one or two moments like this where the 
progression happens so fast and there's just this buzzing of energy around like what is possible we don't even know and then there's only a few people doing it and you know those few people and so you're all kind of in it together the base fatality list chris mentioned is not dissimilar to accidents in north american mountaineering the book that dives into what happened in in this year's accidents in the hopes of educating climbers when you visit the base fatality list there's a graph tracking the fatalities by year and if you look at it, you can see both the sport's growth and its cost. For base jumping, in particular wingsuiting, the viral videos that the sport produced meant that suddenly the sport had an audience. With the audience came growth, and the hard truth was that with growth came death. In 2006, there were 13 base jumping fatalities. None were from wingsuiting. In 2016, the number of total fatalities that year hit 37. 24 were wingsuits. And in those figures, there were a lot of legends. In 2009, base jumping took Shane McConkie. In 2013, Mario Richard, Steph's husband, died in Italy in a wingsuiting accident. Richard was one of the most experienced practitioners out there and had pioneered guided tandem base jumping around the cliffs near their home in Moab. In 2014, Sean Leary, one of the most beloved monkeys and greatest talents both on the sharp end and in a wingsuit, died in Zion. In 2015, Dean Potter in Yosemite. We've all lost people from, from climbing, right? You know, everybody talking on this phone now. And, and you obviously, the sport of base jumping um, took you're the love of your life. Does it change your relationship to the activity? Has it deepened it? Has it just been a part of life or is it just not so connected for you? So pretty early on for me, I started having friends die and it was really devastating to have that happen and just kind of had to come to terms with that, you know, that that's kind of part of life. And so, because people always ask me that about, when Mario died, my husband, and we were together on the same jump in Italy. And at first, a lot of people were kind of having this question mark, like, are you going to keep base jumping? And I mean, almost as soon as I could deal with like walking and like leaving my house, I was jumping on things like the tombstone because I needed to get out of the house. And that's just, you know, a thing I do. So I never have in recent times with even like these losses coming so close, I guess I've never had this feeling of like, well, if I stop doing something, I'm going to make bad things stop happening in the world. Like it is, unfortunately it's not like that. And so I, I, I don't, I guess I don't have that perspective on it, but I've certainly been asked that a lot. Do you think that you'll be base jumping your whole life? I, I imagine that I will be, but it's hard to say. Yeah, it's, I'm trying to imagine an old lady, you know, exiting the Iger or something, like some big, big jump. And I don't know, it's, it's just hard to imagine uh, base jumping late in life. But I suppose, I mean, like you said, it, it could be done. Yeah, I mean, I have friends. I have friends who are in their 70s that are wingsuit base jumpers, and it's pretty radical. <laughs> really? Yeah. Huh. It's different in Europe. It's kind of interesting, too, in light of like the whole recent coronavirus, where we're all trying to understand that risk and people are having very different 
responses to it, right? And trying to understand what feels right and how to mitigate it and what to cut out and what not to cut out. It's, it's um, I guess for me, my perspective on risk is that it's not ever going to be gotten rid of. So I think what's interesting and valuable is focusing very much on mitigating it. And I, I honestly, that is one reason I like base jumping and climbing so much because I, I like that part of it, of being able to do something really improbable and really freaking amazing and being able to do it in a way that isn't crazy risky, you know, that's sustainable where you're like, I can do this all the time. And unless something really weird happens, I can always do it all the time because it's great, you know? Chris, obviously there were the close calls, but um, sometimes people can say, hey, that was a bad day. You know, I'll get back on the horse. Were you just completely done after the Grand Canyon? The scary thing is just how many really smart, super talented people die wingsuit base jumping. And that's kind of what sealed me stopping is because I never felt like that smart or talented at it. I felt like I was there at the right time. And so to watch really talented people like Dean Potter, like Shane McConkey, who have done so many, you know, calculated, smart things, the jumps that they were doing were just, you know, they were the ones that I never even thought of doing. And then, you know, have this sport eat them up. Like it definitely changed, changed my whole perspective. Um, It just, to me, it felt like they were about as skilled as you could be. Chris, I'm kind of curious why you think base jumping took over the climbing community like it did at this moment in time. One was it was the right group of people. Often it seems that in kind of a golden age of the sport, you just need that right cast of characters that can like work off each other, you know. And I think the first ascent aspect of it, or in this case, the first descent was very real and people got how cool it was to stare at a map, to stare at Google Earth and be like, man, like most of the world has never even been looked at as far as what you can do with a wingsuit. It's just this blank canvas if you're into finding first ascents. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about the right cast of characters because I I did always kind of think that that base jumping really benefited from Dean as a charismatic leader. I mean, I know that I certainly was was interested in base jumping and sort of drawn toward it because Dean Potter was doing such interesting things, combining free soloing and base jumping and wingsuit flying. And, and he just made it seem so cool. It was like, well, if he's doing it, it must be worth considering. But then once he died doing it, it really turned me the other direction. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like when you lose the charismatic leader, it's just suddenly a lot less interesting. And I felt the same way when so many of the people I looked up to in the sport started dying. It was just, it was devastating. Yeah, sorry. I'm just like sitting here all depressed. I mean, I, I remember the day that I found out that Dean died in an accident like that. And then, and, uh, I happened to be in Sacramento and I, I just remember spending the day like biking around sort of thinking about it, it, you know, because he was such a, I mean, he was a childhood hero of mine, you know, and, and it's interesting because you know, Dean was somebody who was doing the most dangerous seeming things in the world. And yet somehow, as you said, he just seemed so good at it. You know, he seemed so competent. You just think that he's going to be the person that 
that sort of gets away with it because he's he's good at it. But I, I found it pretty sobering. I was like, oh. And, you know, thinking about it now, I still find it pretty sobering. You're just like, poor Dean. What lessons do you think you carried away from those years? I just remember when I was big wall climbing and reading every book about the golden age of big wall climbing, you know, five times. And then being like, well, where are Yvonne Chouinard and Tom Frost and Royal Robbins now? Like, wait, Yvonne's fly fishing and Royal Robbins is making like hiking pants. And, uh, you know, Tom Frost is into lighting equipment. Like, wait, I don't get it. Like, how did all these climbers who had kind of found the Holy Grail, which was climbing El Cap, then kind of change to these what seemed like much more mundane pursuits? But now in retrospect, I kind of realized at their core, they were adventurers and they just really wanted to be creative. And so they kind of took that knowledge from climbing and then just transferred it to all these other elements of life. And that for me became the model, which was, you know, the climbing really can stay with you forever in all these different elements of your life, even if you're not actually climbing, doing them. I'm like, amen, let, let that be a life <laughs> lesson. I'm like, I'm, I'm gonna hold on to that little nugget. Alex, what do, you, what do you take away from these conversations? It's hard to really capture the whole thing that was going on with the stone monkeys because I think, no, I just, I still don't know how to articulate it actually. I still don't know how to sum this all up, but there are just so many things going on culturally with, with extreme sports and the X Games and, you know, free skiing and like all this, you know, gymnastic elements and movement being brought into other sports like skiing and snowboarding and so and like BMX biking, like all this crazy stuff going on. And then you have climbing, trying to find its own way, trying to do something interesting, creative and new, and sort of incorporating all these other sort of extreme sports elements. And, you know, now looking back on it, it feels very much like a bizarre little detour for climbing. But at the time while it was going on, and, and I was in the middle of all this, you know, I was growing up through this and climbing in Yosemite for a lot of this. I was like, this is the future. This is so cool. And I think a lot of that had to do with people like Dean making it look really cool. You know, I was like, man, look how much fun he's having. Look at the crazy things that he's doing. And it's so incredible. I was like, I should be doing that. But, um, but then I learned how to skydive and I was like, you know what? I shouldn't be doing that. That's horrifying. And I'm not into it. <laughs> I think part of the extreme nature i mean what do you call like the whole crazy stone master like extreme sports stuff like i keep saying extreme but like is there a word for that the way i think of it is is like gravity it's all about that it's all about that word both on a physics level yeah, totally, and also totally. uh, on a risk level metaphoric yeah yeah you touched on this earlier but um you know dean was was, was a childhood hero uh, who became an equal uh, to you and Sean Larry Stanley was a friend you did a bunch of climbing with. How how did you um, internalize, sort of like intellectually internalize their deaths? I think with both Stanley and Dean's death, I mean, just you just feel sad. I'm just like, oh, that's too bad. I mean, both were surprising to me, but also not totally shocking. You know, it's one of those things where. Like you, you never expect something like that to happen, but at the same time, you know rationally that that it's a serious possibility if somebody's consistently base jumping in that way. And I mean, it's pretty heavy to hear that, you know, your childhood hero died in an accident that seems, I don't know, sort of 
you know, it's just like, you don't want to say unfair because obviously, you know, there's no real fairness in it. You're just kind of like, it's just one of those things that happens. You're just like, oh, what a slightly arbitrary, you know, it's like, why that day? You know, it's like for all the times he jumped, like, why was that the time that, that he didn't clear a, a, a gap, you know? Though, though all accidents, you always want to rationalize them in some way. You want to find some, some explanation for it. And, and ultimately, a lot, a lot of the time, it just comes down to random. You know, it's like you take enough chances, sometimes things don't work out. Which, you know, yeah, I'm just rambling, but I'm like, obviously, that's a lesson for my life, too. Thanks, Steph, Chris, and Randy for sharing your stories and perspectives. For photos, follow along on Instagram at Climbing Gold, all one word. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. Today's episode was written and edited by Andrew Burton and me, Fitzcall, with additional editing by Cordelia Zars and Elizabeth Nakano. Music by Brennan O'Connell, Amy Stolzenbach, and me and Cordelia. Art direction and social media by Anya Miller. Our executive producers from Duct Tape and Beer are Becca Call and Lisey Hendricks. And for RXR Sports, Jonathan Retzik and Ben Endy. Please write us a review on iTunes or give us a shout out on social. It all helps. You guys are awesome. Thanks for listening.